0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Automata podcast. I'm John Southurst from bitsonline.com, and with me is Daniel Corey from Pactum Capital. Hey, Daniel. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. We're going to bring you all the latest news from the automated economy, which is blockchain, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, and the parts that hold it all together. And uh, today, our guest is uh, Elise Colleen. Um, we're really glad to have her. Elise has extensive experience in the, the startup investment and mentoring scene. She's a, a founding partner at Stillmark, uh, an investment advisory and investment group, and she's been a mentor at Plug and Play Tech Center, Alchemist Accelerator, and Springboard Enterprise. And she's also written extensively about cryptocurrencies, blockchain, decentralization, and she's made appearances at numerous conferences and in, in the media. So welcome, Elise. That's that's a very impressive resume there.
1: Thank you for saying that, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: No worries. I'm really interested to hear how you came to be here. Like, uh, what what's your background, and how did you uh, how did you get into blockchain and cryptos?
1: Sure. So there's two pieces of my background, I think, that led me to be able to have an understanding of the significance of this space early. First, um, academically, I have a background in the life sciences and in statistics and was trained as a researcher, um, conducting, uh, forming hypotheses and conducting research to prove or disprove um, theories that pushed forward the area of science that I was exploring. And my work was in the field of immunology. I went, I was in a PhD program and uh, dropped out after getting my master's after realizing that although I enjoyed exploration, research, math, that I wanted to take a more applied approach to my work and be working, um, on ideas and on, and following hypotheses where the outcome of my work or my team's work could hopefully have impact on culture and on those around me. And so I left research and ended up almost accidentally in the field of venture capital. When I left academia, I left assuming that I would become an entrepreneur myself And began to meet with other entrepreneurs and engineers and venture capitalists. And early into that process, there was a venture capitalist based in Los Angeles that – Recognized from my background and my story and what interests me, that in fact, rather than being an entrepreneur, that I was a venture capitalist and invited me to try out that field and practice um, by joining his team for a ten-week internship, and that turned into um, that that turned into what ultimately became a profession that I've pursued for about the past seven years. So, as a venture capitalist in LA in 2011 and 12, I was focused on enterprise technology investments and infrastructure and a little bit of consumer as well. In 2013, I found uh, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. And just did a, a deep dive on the technology and began meeting with teams and started investing as early as that year. And what was exciting to me about working in the blockchain ecosystem as an investor was that there was an opportunity to do well while also doing good. So I saw an opportunity to produce, you know, standard venture capital style returns while also investing in an ecosystem and a technology that had the opportunity and the potential to change the world in a way that I believe is positive um, for individuals and for societies and just for culture broadly.
0: Right. So what, what aspect of blockchain was it that, uh, that appealed to you? Was it the cryptocurrency aspect or was it uh, something about the blockchain technology?
1: Well, so I was interested in blockchain or am interested in blockchain technology itself. And so some of the early investments that I made were in infrastructure tech, So, for instance, um, I was one of the first institutional investors in Blockstream in their uh, initial round. And what was interesting about Blockstream and remains interesting, of course, is that some of the industry's absolute top scientists and folks whose prior work um, was foundational to the development of blockchain and to Bitcoin were together on a team and considerate of how to best develop a robust infrastructure of a distributed network that is the Bitcoin blockchain. And so looking at infrastructure then, as is still true now, was interesting. Um, we're still, and it was critical. Um, and so in addition to supporting uh, infrastructure development through investment, I also wanted to be sure to spend as much of my time there as I could to understand, um, although I'm a non-technical investor, I wanted to understand as much as I could the um, what was the trade-offs that were made by engineers that were working at the protocol level and how things would be optimized and prioritized um, so that we could understand how protocols developed, and what future roadmaps might look like, and how, even though in this dynamic environment where um, you know the the future is being creative, to understand how decisions are made and what's prioritized uh, allows us to just frankly be better investors. Um, whether we're investing in infrastructure or applications, because of course. Um regardless of where you invest, whether that be in infrastructure or enterprise tech or consumer technology in this ecosystem, um, it's all a collaborative. It, it's all collaborative. And so to invest without understanding how infrastructure or, or basic protocols will develop um, is Uh, you know, too risky probably to be considered venture capital. And so in early 2013 and 14, we wanted to make sure to spend as much time on the infrastructures as possible um, in order to inform our decisions as VCs active in the space going forward.
2: When you first started in this, it was really just Bitcoin. And today we have Ethereum, there's Stellar, there's all these tokens what is your what is your sense of, of of how far we've come and and what needs to be improved in this market?
1: Sure. So when I started True, there were um, you know fewer uh, protocols um, that were active. Although I think it was more than just Bitcoin. So it, you know Ripple was of course around and. Um, Certainly, I was focused on Bitcoin, um, and but it was a much earlier time, and there were you know maybe a handful of cryptocurrencies versus the several thousand that we have now. But interesting enough, some of the things that we, some of the concepts that we spent time on in 2013 um, were we we got to see early versions of things that now today have matured, or there's more activity. So, uh, for instance, is Um, I was one of the first VCs to look at the token sale space before it was called ICOs. So, Daniel, as you know, the first um, token sale really was in late 2013, and the first few were 2013 and 2014. And we looked at, at the time I was at Clearstone Venture Partners in Los Angeles and led Led diligence in, um, without naming the exact token sales, but led diligence for, you know, several um, investment opportunities within, say, the first three or four uh, token sales um, that we're seeing. And so, and this of course was for companies raising much smaller amounts than we see today. So companies would be raising amounts of capital that really looked similar to a pre-seed or seed round. Um, and you know, the process was just quite straightforward and simple and, and because it was such, uh, an early, um, an early model to an early and differentiated model for what it is to raise capital. We didn't as a firm go forward to actually make the investment, but I've been able to track ICOs and token sales and token-incentivized software systems um, since the concept was first introduced in 2013 and early 2014. Um, Something else I looked at in 2013 was second-layer technology to the Bitcoin blockchain. And, um, you know, of course, that's an important topic of debate today. And some of the most exciting things, I think, happening in the space today is that as core protocols have matured, there's opportunities for more sophisticated development of second layer infrastructure. And so as we spent time on that and and learning about what that could look like or imagining even what it could look like in 2013, um, we're ex- we're even more excited for the activity at the second layer on the Bitcoin blockchain and it, within other ecosystems happening in 2018 and uh, beyond. So we spend a lot of time there now, as as we did, you know, five years ago. Wow,
0: there's actually a lot there that we want to ask follow-up questions on. But uh, since uh, since we went down the ICO path first, let uh, let me ask about that. Um, You said that that's been around since 2013 or 2014. I think a lot of people don't realize that.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So I was on a panel recently with someone that said the first ICO was in 2016. Um, And actually, I was so surprised by that. I I missed that this person said it and I didn't correct them. But, you know, the first token sale, I think, would be considered um, Daniel correct me if I'm wrong, it would be considered to be MasterCoin sale?
2: That's correct, yeah.
1: Okay, so MasterCoin was in 2013, and of course, the the person that um, I think originated or invented the concept of uh, token-incentivized software and the creation and establishment of a, a deeper network effect through the issuance um, of tokens was J.R. Willett. And I was fortunate enough to meet J.R. Willett in 2013 um, and was able to follow along um, with his work and be in conversation with him and then to see the first uh, token sales that were based on the platform that he created. And so some of those tokens were, for instance, the Made Safe Token um, and Factum. And so these are projects. And so Factum, for instance, was a project that I was involved with um, fairly early and working with um, that team around the ideas of really what it means, what you can do if you have um, a software that's incentivized by tokens um, and how that can potentially create uh, a, a system that's better communicative and more secure. So I'm not, though I've been in the space, you know, I think probably longer than most investors. Um, I'm certainly not someone that thinks that, you know, everything needs a token. I think that, you know, there's select and rare um models that are enhanced by the presence of a token. But I do think that there's some uh, um, models that, frankly, are optimized when when the software um, at play is incentivized by a token.
0: What uh, What do others in the VC industry think about ICOs? Is there a lot of resistance to it or are they kind of curious about it?
1: It feels very um, divided, actually. So I think in terms of folks operating with a focus in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, I'm probably much more conservative. So it seems that people are um, generally very excited about ICO's opportunity to invest in a token, which, of course, greatly advantages Um, venture capitalists and then limited partners, potentially. So the investors of venture capitalists, which are known as limited partners, there's an advantage for these groups and stakeholders to invest in a token in that you have liquidity. And that's been something that's been challenging for venture capitalists prior. So Um, liquidity just means that your investment is something that you're able to um, retrieve without have it immediately. And so generally in venture capital, we invest in debt or equity in a company that is relatively illiquid and can't be converted into another form of value easily. So Um, A good example of something like this is making an investment in a company at the seed or Series A stage in an equity round where you own shares of a company that won't be liquid until that company is either acquired or or goes public in an IPO. But by investing in a token, of course, you greatly reduce or sometimes completely eliminate the waiting period for liquidity. And so it seems to me that many investors um, that are focused on blockchain and cryptocurrency are excited by the opportunity and recognize the value of being able to have um, an investment that is liquid and tradable uh, much earlier than is standard for venture capital. So those folks are on one end end of the spectrum. Um, and then, of course, there's folks in the venture capital community that haven't um, decided how to participate yet in investing in blockchain technology or cryptocurrency. And so are, I presume more hesitant to be involved in ICOs or token sales. And I think that in terms of my own practice and how I spend time, I probably look more similar to someone like like that. So We do. um, We're generally focused as investors on investing in very standard debt and equity rounds, um, as we would in a company that's uh, not focused on blockchain or not focused on cryptocurrency. And then an investment for us in something that is immediately liquid or converts to a cryptocurrency or a digital token is the exception rather than the rule. So represents a smaller portion um, of our practice.
2: Do you think that ICOs or, or or tokens representing a startup is is that, could that be the way that an entrepreneur raises money a decade from now? Like they won't do debt, they won't do equity, it'll just be tokens? Or what, what do you think that that's going to look like from the, the VC perspective?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Daniel. So I think that, so I expect that we will continue the the model itself of raising through the issuance of a token that is related to or incentivizes or is required for software will continue to mature. And so I'm not sure that it means more founders are issuing tokens, but I think it means that um, the right sorts of groups in 10 years will be issuing tokens. So I suppose what I mean by that is well, actually, let me let me back up and give an example. So since about 2014, I've been talking about and writing about the opportunity to share device level resources. So um, resources that exist on your phone or through IOT, things like data storage or um, connectivity and. Um, Resources like this, that that can new or just general data that might exist on one device, that that can be shared newly because of blockchain technology and the tokenization um, of this resource. And so, I think that I, I'm starting when we spend time in the token space, or when I spend time in the ICO space now, I try to spend time with companies that are looking at the intersection of digital tokens and device-level resources. So um, if you don't, Daniel, do you mind if I provide an example of that?
2: Yeah, I think that that would be great.
1: Okay, so... And I, I suppose I want to do this in a non-promotional way. So I, um, so let me give the disclaimer that this is a company that um, I spend uh, probably about 10 hours a month working with um, because I'm very excited about what they're doing, although um, nothing that I say is intended to be taken as investment advice. Um, there's a company called RightMesh. That's based out of Canada. That is um, that has created a very sophisticated um, mesh network technology that allows phones and other sorts of connected devices to share um, to share access to to connectivity, so that one person's phone can be used um, as a hub to to the web or as a a, a general um, as a as a hub that can connect you to other phones, to other devices, and to um, the web generally. And so I had worked on a problem like this before as an investor in a company called Open Garden. And Open Garden was the company that had introduced an application called the FireChat app, which became an application that was really um, broadly and, and wildly popularly. popularly, excuse me, used um, by by protesters in countries where governments were shutting down Internet connection um, and telecommunication abilities in face of individuals resistance to government. So, for instance, the umbrella protest that happened um, in China the folks protesting when they lost um, connection to the World Wide Web would be able to use, um, of course, they would have already had to have downloaded the FireChat app, but they would use FireChat app to stay in touch with one another so that they could communicate between phones without having to rely on an Internet connection. Um, and what we saw was that in times of acute uh, stress um, of populations that were um you know, protesting or trying to gather in some other way that wasn't, um, that wasn't, you know, permitted or encouraged by the government that there would be this high level of engagement with the technology and with the application. And then in times when there wasn't acute stress, that the engagement patterns would look different. And I think that that was in part because there wasn't a way to continue to incentivize use outside of these acute stress um, occurrences. And there wasn't a way to... to um, to signal contribution. So people didn't have a way to track what they were giving to the network and then what they were taking from the network. And this sort of what we've called gamification, although I think a better way to think of it is just really a symbol of contribution, um, is important for folks that are engaging um, in a community and in a community that that is growing. And so Uh, the feedback mechanism of having a token that represents both what you're giving and taking is something that can encourage um, a more robust community to develop. And so this is essentially what RightMesh is doing. So RightMesh is offering um, what can be thought of as a similar technology to what OpenGarden had done, although it's not there's there's vast technological differences. It's just that the the use or the value proposition of the technology can be thought of in a similar way. But the communities using the technology will likely be different because the sharing of resources will be um, can be tracked by folks using the resources through the right mesh token. And so those types of projects where device level resources, the sharing of device level resources is made more efficient um, and more and more transparent to the engaged community is something that we're interested in tracking and keeping a close eye on. And I think that we start to unlock our ability to share these sorts of resources um, when when we can collaborate through um through purchase, through microtransactions using digital tokens.
0: Is there something about the uh, the censorship resistant aspect of these uh, decentralized systems that appeals to you most?
1: Well, sure. So very simply, I think that when a system or network is decentralized, it's inherently more scalable. And so when, when a network is decentralized or a group is decentralized, there's less attack surface and an attack can be of course, very broadly defined. And when you reduce a tax surface, I believe that, um, operation of the system is more, it is becomes more efficient. Um, and it becomes more efficient because it can operate outside of, um, you know, outside of the same restraints that a centralized company has to face. And so, um, you know, I suppose just very simply that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in in decentralized networks. we I'm focused primarily in terms of blockchain technology, I try to focus on um, networks that are most decentralized. And um, when we look at new protocols, something that's attractive about um, you know technologies that we can serve for investment is how that how that team, Um, or that the group of developers working on the protocol thinks about decentralization, how they understand the value proposition, how they're advantaged by having a decentralized network, um, and perhaps even how they've um, worked to optimize what decentralization means within their network and how that differs from the way Bitcoin has um, assured and created a decentralized network. And so that's one reason that I'm interested in decentralization and and the types of decentralized projects I'm interested in. But beyond that, um, I'm I'm attracted to um, and hope that, you know, in 2018, we talk more about what decentralization allows. um, So concepts like the ability for individuals to be able to opt in and opt out of a system, Um, concepts of, um, you know, ideas like uh, uh, hard promises that can be issued by a technology versus a team. So in having a decentralized system that an individual user can understand what they can expect from the software, from the technology, um, and can, can trust it because a decentralized, you know, system and a development process and consensus process, of course, um, is more resistant to change and so is um, easier to trust or is something that perhaps can be better relied upon than a centralized system that is quicker to change. And so these sorts of concepts that are, um, you know, really, frankly, unique to a distributed network or a decentralized system um, are what are most attractive to me. And I, I feel like as a community, we've moved a little bit away from these topics. Um, but of course, in 2013 and 14, and even in in 15 and 16, really, you know, in the years before the price activity um, got as hot as it did in 2017, I think the core concepts of what decentralization is and why it was valuable were more discussed. Um, and that, that's what drew me to the field rather than You know, the idea of, um, you know, of wealth creation through coming in to participate in the Bitcoin ecosystem early and um, producing a return through, you know, holding or trading a currency.
2: One of the growing pains in this industry that isn't being discussed, and I I, I wanted to bring it up because I'm sure you have some thoughts on this, is scaling. We're in this situation with these decentralized systems where they need to scale. And I feel like this is a whole new, it's a whole new situation that just hasn't been encountered before. So what are your thoughts on scaling Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of these? What's like the holistic view that you have on this subject?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so really we, so I had always, as I um, said at the beginning of our discussion, wanted to spend time and, um, and you know, frankly, like thi- cycles and iterations of thought um, on how open source developers working on these protocols thought about the trade-offs they made when, when um, in the process of advancing the technology, right? So, um, understanding that it was a distributed group of developers that would be working on these protocols and that decisions, you know, would be made slowly. And frankly, that's a benefit of, of having a distributed open source development group. So because we were spending time with these sorts of folks and stakeholders, the developers, um, you know, in 2013 and 14 and, you know, it, and in the subsequent years, um, I had always expected that consumer level scale would happen through second layer technologies. So it wasn't, you know, nothing that happened in 2017 on the technical side was really a surprise. And frankly, there had been great anticipation for it because we had always expected that in order to have, um, you know, in order for... uh, Every mom and pop shop, for instance, to be able to accept digital currency, that there would need to be the development of um, a second layer technology that could give uh, scale to the the primary protocol level. And so we had always thought of, um, you know, transactions and data stored at the protocol level to be using a scarce and valuable resource and that you and that that would be. Um, that would be something that would be leveraged by things built um, one level up. And so companies, you know, frankly, it was this was something that companies were looking to do as early as 2013. Right. So Factum essentially is a, a second layer technology that um, pegs back to the Bitcoin blockchain to leverage the security of the Bitcoin blockchain without forcing all the data collected um, in, by Factum software, which is used for enterprise record management, without forcing that all to be stored on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's stored, um, you know, by Factum's own system and network, and then pegged back to the Bitcoin blockchain. With the recognition, of course, that there's a scarce resource um, in Bitcoin. Blockchain blocks, um, and so we had been we had been working on these concepts um, for years, and so I've been I was excited to see developments like Segwit, for instance, which allowed um, you know the advancement of second layer infrastructure to be to be built and. Um, you know, following following advancements like that in 2017, I think that the the ecosystem in 2018 and 2019 begins to accelerate as we can now start um, start scaling through uh, higher higher levels of infrastructure.
0: I think I've seen some writing from you that said that uh, you prefer that second layer scaling for things like Bitcoin rather than you know the on chain scaling of something like Bitcoin Cash. Is that right?
1: Well, sure, that's right. So, if you look historically at how um, at how this space has developed, so even prior to Bitcoin, um, you know much of the earlier writing on digital currency or maybe not much of, but certainly thought leaders in the space of what it is to have a digital currency um, had had always advanced the idea of using um, you know, future and higher layers of infrastructure to help scale the the core um, protocol and the scarce resource of um, data that's committed through through block intervals, right? And so it wasn't, you know. So the way, I mean, perhaps this ties a little bit into my background um, and how I come into this space. And so, you know, I come into venture capital as a as a researcher and as someone that. Um, you know, was deeply tied to data and um, statistics, and so we are building our hypothesis. Of her hypotheses after going through a deep literature review right, as you do in academia or a deep dive into what's been written and what's previously been done in an ecosystem. And then from there, we develop a set of hypotheses about what we expect to see. And I think that in the literature and just in the technology itself, it was clear in 2013 um, when I began and probably much before 2013 that for 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 consumer scale to be achieved, that there needed to be, um, you know, infrastructure that existed um, on top of the protocol layer, and that this was, um, you know, a way to assure a secure system and a system that had scale.
0: All right, man. That's uh, that, there's a lot of information there, actually, Elise. I think we could probably talk to you for about an hour or two about this, but uh, we we have kind of a half hour hard limit on this show, so. If um, there's a lot of material there by you, if people want to find out more about your thinking and um, your view of this, because I think it's quite valuable, where should they go?
1: Sure. So I'm on Twitter um, at Elise Killeen. And I've also contributed to um, a couple of handbooks on digital currency, both written with academic authorship groups. Um, And both of those books are um, linked within my Twitter profile. So by finding me on Twitter, you can both find um, my feed, but also these two academic books that speak, the first of which speaks about um, IOT and the convergence of IOT trends and blockchain technology. And the second, which speaks about global financial institutions 2.0 and what happens within financial institutions once they begin to adopt blockchain technology.
0: Thanks. And, uh, you've also got a homepage at, uh, EliseKilleen.com. Is that right?
1: I do. And it's perpetually about six months out of date, (laughs) but if you want to see what I was doing six months ago in terms of talks and quotes and publications, you can find me there as well.
0: Excellent. And that's uh, Elise spelled dot A-L-Y-S-E.
1: A-L-Y-S-E-K-I-L-L-E-E-N.com.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much, Elise.
1: Wonderful. And, Thank you.
0: And you've been, uh, you've been listening to Automata with John Southurst, Daniel Corey, and Elise Galen. So for all the latest crypto and tech news, check out bitsonline.com. And Daniel here is the co-founder and CEO of Pactum Capital, which is a cryptocurrency derivatives firm. And you can find that at pactumcapital.com. So we'll be back with another report from the crypto economy next week. And remember this, the future is automated. See you next time. Thanks.